Our first reading comes from Luke chapter 2, and it's on the service sheet. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. And then carrying on verse 47. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. <coughs> then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour, when darkness reigns. Well, this Good Friday, we're looking at some of the less uh, considered players and some of the less familiar imagery. And we begin with Judas, and we look at his motivation and then his actions. We read, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. Now it's true that the betrayal of Jesus by Judas was seen by the early church as a fulfilment of Scripture, a fulfilment of the Old Testament, and that it took place after Satan had first prompted and then entered into Judas. Yet, such facts don't exonerate Judas. Neither the biblical prophecy nor the satanic influence robbed him of his personal responsibility for his action. In fact, at the last minute in the upper room, Jesus made an appeal to him. And when Judas rejected it, Jesus said, Woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. So what could have been Jesus' motivation? He'd been with Jesus for three years. He'd seen the most stupendous things. What motivated him? Well, the evangelists focus on his love of money. John tells us that he was the treasurer of the apostolic band and that he was a thief, helping himself to the contents of their common purse. No wonder he was horrified at the extravagant expense of... Uh, Mary pouring all that alabaster oil on Jesus' feet. And it seems that very shortly after that, he'd gone straight to the, to the priests to recoup the loss. 
that he could have had if she'd just given it to the band and he could have flogged it. It was a year's wages. But he bargained Jesus' life for 30 silver, of co- 30 silver coins, which was the price at that time of a common slave. But there's another possible motive for Judas's betrayal. It may have been more political than commercial. There's been much speculation about the meaning of Judas's surname, Iscariot. Some believe it was a place name and that he was a man from Kirioth, south of Hebron. Others think that Iscariot was a corruption of Sicarios, which means assassin from the word Sicar dagger, and that Judas was a member of the Sicari, a radical terrorist group that is mentioned by the Jewish historian Josephus in the first century. So the thought at least comes to mind, was Judas a militant nationalist? one who'd been longing for the liberation of Israel from Roman domination, but that he's become disillusioned by this failed Messiah. It's possible, but the evidence isn't strong enough for us to be sure. The evangelists, as we've seen, set Mary and uh, Judas in stark contrast. Mary has uncalculating generosity in the way in which she expresses her love and devotion to Jesus when she pours out that ointment from the alabaster jar. But that incenses him. He sees that as a complete waste. And yet he's prepared to sell Jesus for a third of the cost of that ointment as he writes to Timothy. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Well, so much for the possible motivation. Let's look at what actually unfolded. The whole story illustrates the interweaving of the divine purpose and human action, all under the providence of God. So coming out of the ordeal in the olive grove in Gethsemane, Jesus is clear in his mind that there's no alternative to the cross and is surrendered to that purpose in his will. What shall I say, he asks. Father, save me from this hour. And then he answers himself, no, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So Jesus is ready for the next stage of the drama. A detachment of armed soldiers from the Sanhedrin, they're Jewish soldiers, sent by the chief priests, and they're led by Judas. And they arrive at the garden. But uh, you might wonder, why do do you need Judas to point out Jesus? Well, it's dark, it's Passover, The whole of the Mount of Olives is covered by an informal campsite of tens of thousands of people who are on pilgrimage to the Passover. Now, Jesus and his band would have had a place where they rendezvoused, and Judas knew where it was. He knew where to find them amongst the thousands. And he'd also given the soldiers a prearranged signal, a kiss, 
And when he kissed Jesus, Jesus' only protest was to say that he wasn't leading a rebellion and that he'd been teaching in public in the temple courts and they could have easily have arrested him then. But at that point, Peter, the apostle, is in no mood to submit to Jesus' arrest. Just as at Caesarea Philippi, so here, he still rejected the whole concept of a Messiah who would have to suffer and die. But this time, he doesn't just expostulate. He took impetuous action. He drew his sword and slashed off the right ear of the high priest's servant. Well, Jesus told him to sheath his sword. And he added, Do you not think that I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? That's more legions in the entire eastern part of the Roman Empire. But how then, he says, would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen? in this way. It is most impressive to see Jesus deliberately putting himself under the authority of the Old Testament scriptures, that he must be betrayed, must be arrested, must be rejected, must be condemned, and ultimately must be killed. And why must these things take place? Because the scriptures said so. And the the scriptures reveal the mind of God in the salvation of man. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you hate nothing that you have made and forgive the sins of all those who are penitent. Create and make in us new and contrite hearts that we, worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, may receive from you the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We read from Mark's Gospel. Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one who who we call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. (coughs) 
Well, we know nothing about Barabbas except what we read in the Gospels. But all four of the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, tell his story. Now, putting the different pieces together of the evidence, it appears that he was a notorious criminal and a political prisoner. He'd recently taken part in an insurrection in the city and he was both a robber and a murderer. Today, we would call him a terrorist who was now on death row awaiting his execution. The evangelists also refer to the procurator's custom of granting a Passover amnesty to a prisoner chosen by the people. Now Pilate saw this, in this tradition a way of escape from his personal dilemma and he suggested to the crowd that they should choose Jesus. But to his great consternation, they chose Barabbas instead, so foiling his plan. It's hard to imagine Barabbas' incredulity when his cell door opened and he was called out, not to execution, but to freedom. He must have stumbled out of the dark cell, gobsmacked into the bright sunshine of that spring day. He was not only released, but in a sense, redeemed. Perhaps Barabbas also felt, as we do, the anomaly of his position. The one who had given sight to the blind and laid his hands on little children was to be crucified, while the murderer who deserved his sentence was let off scot-free. The Apostle Peter referred to this topsy-turvy situation in the second sermon he preached to the crowd in Jerusalem after the day of Pentecost. He said, they have killed the author of life while asking for a murderer to be released for them. Now Christians see in the story of Barabbas more than an anomaly. We also see a parable of our redemption For each of us resembles Barabbas. Like him, we deserve death. But like him, we have escaped death because Jesus died in our place on the cross that day. Now, if curiosity drew Barabbas to Calvary, and here we're speculating, but he surely must have been curious Perhaps he watched Jesus die. And as he watched, maybe he said to himself, he's dying in my place. And perhaps that sight might have touched him, softened him, and even redeemed him. Let us pray. Almighty God, whose Son, Jesus Christ, fasted 40 days in the wilderness and was tempted as we are, yet without sin, give us grace to discipline ourselves in obedience to your Spirit. And as you know our weakness, so may we know your power to save, through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene. 
who was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Well, at this point, Jesus must have been completely worn out. He'd endured several trials without sleep, together with a merciless flogging and much abuse. And now, by Roman tradition, he had to carry his own cross, or at least the crossbar, to the place of execution. It seems that he stumbled under its weight. It's true that none of the evangelists says so, but the Christian tradition does. And this may explain why the soldiers laid hold of Simon of Cyrene and transferred the cross to his shoulders, compelling him to carry it. The church has always honoured Simon for his act of kindness, even if he was forced to do so. And it seems clear that Simon and his family became believers. For Mark, in his gospel, identifies him as the father of Alexander and Rufus, Mark 15, 21, which indicates that they were known well by the church in Rome at the time that Mark's gospel was published there. Simeon, called Niger, which means, of course, that he is black, was a leader in the church of Antioch, and may, in fact, have been the same person as Simon of Cyrene. And the Rufus and his mother, whom Paul greeted in Rome, Romans 16, 13, may well have been of the same family. And all this would seem to suggest that Simon, that the Simon who carried the cross for Jesus, was a black African from what we call Libya. Now it's interesting to reflect how these three actors in the drama, Judas, Barabbas and Simon, were related to the cross. We could say that Judas caused the cross because of his treachery. We could say that Barabbas escaped the cross, gaining his freedom at Jesus' expense. And we could say that Simon bore the cross, carrying it for Jesus. And what's more, these three are not incompatible with Christian experience today. Like Judas, we have caused the cross by our greed and duplicity. Like Barabbas, we have escaped the cross through him who died in our place. And like Simon, we are called to take up our cross every day and follow Christ. Let's pray. Almighty God, you show to those who are in error the light of your truth, that they may return to the way of righteousness. Grant to all those who are admitted into the fellowship of Christ's religion, that they may reject those things that are contrary to their profession, and follow all such things are as agreeable to the same 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha and there they crucified him. Cicero, in one of his speeches, described crucifixion as a most cruel and disgusting punishment. He added later that the very cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but also from his thoughts, his eyes and his ears. It's neither surprising nor accidental, therefore, that the evangelists are incredibly restrained in what they write. All they say is that here they crucified him without giving any descriptive details. Nevertheless, we know from other sources that the prisoner was laid on his back, his hands, wrists and arms were nailed to the crossbeam, and that the cross was then hoisted to an upright position and dropped into a hole dug for it. Pilate then had inscribed on a bit of wood which was nailed to the cross a title in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. It was above Jesus' head and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The Jewish leaders tried to persuade Pilate to change the wording to the effect that Jesus just simply claimed to be King of the Jews. But Pilate refused. Gradually the crowd of sightseers thinned out. The soldiers gambled for Jesus' clothes and the women watched weeping. Some priests and lawyers stayed and mocked him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. Now part of their sneers were true, literally. He could have exercised divine power and come down from the cross. But what he could not do was save himself and them at the same time. In order to save them, he must remain on the cross and die. So the cross soon came to refer not so much as to a form of execution as to a summary of the gospel of salvation. It's the means by which salvation is procured for us. The Apostle Paul could write, 
May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Almighty God, whose most dear Son went not up to joy but first suffered pain and entered not into glory before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. Here's one more piece of abuse that the Jewish leaders hurled at Jesus while he hung on the cross. It concerned his teaching about the temple and it deserves us reflecting on today. The place to begin is our Lord's respectful attitude to the temple as the house of God. He, of course, knew the history of Israel. He was well acquainted with the sequence of events. First, the tabernacle in the desert, then the first temple built by Solomon, then the second temple begun after the Babylonian exile, and in his own days, Herod's temple, which was still under construction. In each of these buildings, there was an inner sanctuary, or Holy of Holies, in which the Shekinah glory, the symbol of God's presence, could be seen. So God dwelt in the midst of his people, and the temple was the focus of their spiritual life. But Jesus was shocked by the contemporary desecration of the temple by its use for commerce. The house of prayer had become a den of thieves. So Jesus did more than cleanse the temple. He foretold its destruction and replacement. Destroy this temple, he said, and I will raise it again in three days. Now his hearers entirely misinterpreted his meaning. They protested that the Jerusalem temple, which had been under construction by Herod for 46 years, how could he possibly rebuild it in three days? It was absurd. But John explained that Jesus was referring to his resurrection body, which would become a new temple, the focus of the new messianic community. In the future, even when only two or three of his disciples met in his name, he would be among them. Jesus' contemporaries never forgot this saying of his. 
the false witnesses reminded the Sanhedrin of it. And while he was on the cross, the priests mocked his prophecy of a new temple. The New Testament letters, however, unfold Jesus' prophecy. The old temple was destroyed in 70 AD, but now Jesus' messianic and resurrected community is the new temple, the dwelling place of God by his Spirit. As Paul expressed it in 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, saw where he was laid. burial of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea took down the body, wrapped it in the linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. According to Jewish law, the body of an executed criminal might not be left hanging all night. It had to be buried before sunset. Deuteronomy 21:22. If someone guilty of a capital offence is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, You must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day, because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. Now this is where Joseph of Arimathea enters the story. Joseph is what we would call a member of parliament. He was a senior member of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, and he had become a secret believer in Jesus. Taking his courage in both hands, he asked Pilate for the body of Jesus, for crucified criminals would normally be thrown either into a common grave or just simply left for the dogs or vultures to eat. Pilate, as we've heard, was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead, but the centurion on duty assured him that it was so. Consequently, Joseph, and according to John, Nicodemus, buried the body of Jesus, laying it on a stone slab in Joseph's tomb while the women watched. The first reason why the burial of Jesus became part of the gospel is that his burial attested the reality of his death. Jesus did not merely swoon or appear to die. The women did not go to the wrong tomb. No 
grave robbers could have interfered with the body. No, if the body disappeared and the tomb was empty, it was because it had been resurrected. That's to say that simultaneously it was raised and then changed. There's no plausible alternative explanation. And secondly, the burial is part of the gospel because it indicates the bodily nature of the resurrection. The person who was raised and seen is none other than the person who died and was buried. So the resurrection was neither a hallucination nor a resuscitation, but an objective supernatural event by which the process of decomposition was arrested and the dead body of Jesus was both raised to life and transformed into a glorified body. The issue of the resurrection, which we'll look at on Sunday, can be reduced to just two questions. Did Jesus die and was he later seen alive? Answer yes to both those questions and there is someone in a position to forgive sins. Through his sacrifice and suffering on the cross, he took our punishment. God's justice was satisfied and our sins can be forgiven and our lives transformed by him living in us. The resurrection is God's way of putting his imprint on the events and say, they work. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, who in your tender love towards the human race sent your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ, to take upon him our flesh and to suffer death upon the cross, grant that we may follow the example of his patience and humility and also be made partakers of his resurrection. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.